Hey, it's Naughty. And I'm the Teach. And welcome to Naughty and the Teach. This week, we are your resilient, sorry, your favorite resilient black hotties. That's right. We got to make sure that you know we are your favorites. Yeah. We might be the only ones you listen to also. So, hey. You have no choice. We greatly appreciate your listen. But we also <laughs> want to share some exciting news. We got some new updated sound effects. Woo! So that our production wasn't one value of them. is increasing, and we are excited and happy about that. But also, we have been working on transitions. Everything is still in a state of growth, and we appreciate you being a part of this journey. So, uh, Nordy, is there anything we want to say before we pop off? Nope. All right. So... Without further ado, um, let's pop off. All right, here's us talking that shit about whatever is current that is on our mind that really struck our interest. So, Nordy, what do you? How are you going to pop off for us this week? Wow. Well, you know, this week it's a little funny, a little heavy. Uh, we're about to get into it. So. Um, we are recording this on March 24th and at John Jay at the Gerald W. Lynch Theater, the Emmett Till, a new American opera is being has is being shown. I'm sorry, did you say did you say the Emmett Till opera? The new American opera. The new American opera. Yes. What? What? And it is by a woman um, named Claire Koss. Who wrote... Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Hold on. What's her name again? Claire Koss. But wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Before you make your comment. Okay, okay. okay. Um, it's It was written by Claire Koss, and um, the music was composed by Mary D. Watkins. But this opera is based on Claire Koss's play, Emmett Till, Down in My Heart, from 2013. Down in... All right. Uh, I, I, all right, so... There's an opera about Emmett Till. Um, Correct. Ooh, I don't know. I don't know where to start there. And it's at John Jay. Yes. John Jay in New York City. It's being shown at John Jay. From my um, understanding, Claire Koss got the. It took her um, like five years, you know, to get to write every to translate the play into an opera. And to get the funding to have it there, so I believe she's paying to have it there. Did she? Is somebody funded this play. She she raised the money to to fund it. She raised the money. Oh, okay. I <laughs> so there's a play or an opera about Emmett Till and the tragedy that was Emmett Till. Right now, it's an opera, yes, and it's not necessarily about um, what happened to Emmett Till. It's more about the the reaction of white society because the the play is based on Claire Koss's own experience. She was a... Was she alive during Emmett Till? Yes. Um, she was a junior in college and um, in... Woman? She's old. In Baton Rouge. Um, and so she, she has... In the interview, she described about how no... In the white spaces she was in, nobody was talking about it. And that stunned her. Bitch, like you dead ass. Even in that time, but okay. A boy lost his life. And and her and her concern, even in the interviews, is like nobody was talking about it. Um so she wrote a play and then an opera about it. Yes. Yes, Got because it. her um her thing was that she you know capitalized. Did she make money off of this or 
fame, notoriety, anything. Um, the clout? the play one is an is an it's an award winning play, and the- <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, what award? Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, literally. I, I'm just like I'm just in shock. I'm just and just, the well the opera. I'm sure is getting her notoriety, especially in the operatic world, because from what I can understand in the research, it it took multiple. Like there was one composer to add the music, but then the, you had to have a librettist. You have to have all these people to turn it into an opera, which is different to, from like a musical. Um, that's so I was like, uh, so in the operatic world, it's a at least it's a it's a thing, um, and yeah. So so she was she used you know Emmett Till's mother had an open casket service for him. For to, a very specific reason. Yes, so that people could see what um, what these people did to her son. And so she said, I want people to tell my story Um, this because like, it was part of the American story. And then Claire Koss also juxtaposes this with, the, um, with a quote from Martin Luther King that goes along the lines of, you know, good people being silent, being a part of the tragedy of um, racial injustice. And... You know, all these things are true. They are things that have been said. And in in my opinion, I don't think the issue was that a white person wrote the opera or wrote the play. I think that the problem is that it's the the play the play is told from the perspective of a high school teacher teaching civil, civil teaching about the civil rights movement. I think that's was my that's issue the, too. That's it's the, the issue. It's not it's like Emmett Till is a backdrop of his own story. Exactly. It's like he's he's the backdrop of this white person's journey to allyship when that is not the case. Allyship. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not like he like his his story is the forefront and it if if she obviously like she had this experience of being in a classroom. Excuse me, but that is when you know you go you obviously you're you you go to school you're in the writing world you could have gone to um a black writer and said like you know this was what i my experience and what i lived through how can we incorporate it so that it is from a like a black lens you said there was a woman named miss watkins yes i'm um, assuming that's a black woman yes she is a black woman and she in in um i read a few articles so they interviewed her as well and she in her opinion was that, you know, that to say that Claire Koss is um, controlling the narrative is unfair to all of the black people who are in the play and the, all of the black people who um, who worked on it. Oh, and I got something to say about that. Sorry. No, I what you're going to say, I probably am going to agree with. I think that's a that's a roundabout argument in a sense of how are you going to write a play about that time? about the specific people in it, about Emmett Till, who is a specific type of person and not cast those specific type of people in it. To say... No, there's like, black people in the play because well, people that's what I'm saying. Because black people existed. There was yeah. black people in Emmett Till's family. Emmett Till was a little black boy, a young black boy, when all of this happened. To make the argument that, well, because black people... It's like, it reminds me of a couple of years ago, uh, Michelle Rodriguez... Um, when Liam Neeson, they did a movie called Widows, which was a good movie. Um, and he uh, confessed that 
something happened to one of his friends and then he went out actively searching for black people in order to try to harm them. And he tells this story and <laughs> Michelle Rodriguez goes, well, he can't be racist because the way he was tongue kissing Viola Davis down. So it's like saying because of their interactions with a black person in the confines of a script of being hired to do a job that doesn't make them racist or that kind of excuses their colorblindness or whatever the case may be. But like in, in terms of the actors in the play, black people have been acting in roles that are belittling since they have been cast in entertainment. So that is not even a, that's not, that's not fair. You, you are not being fair to those actors because they are trying to, they are trying to get in. None of these people are big name actors. So they're trying, they're in the beginning of their career trying to get in. That's one. And the, the play is about, about a hate crime and about how it, and, and you're, you're talking about it. You're not even necessarily talking about the hate crime. You're talking about from from the from the creator's own description. You're talking about how somebody is teaching about it, and a, a white teacher is teaching about it, and how this white teacher is going against the grain and um, not being silent about how she about how she feels about um, the civil rights movement and how she's pro civil rights. Like, come on, like, come, like. Emmett Till's story is not about white people fighting for equity. That's not what it's about. I, I do want to ask. She's telling the story about white people in this. Did she talk about the white woman who lied on Emmett Till and came out decades later and said that she wasn't that she didn't tell the truth, that she lied on that little boy? From the description that they put out of the play, it it seems like it's only about the that reaction to his murder it it doesn't come into the current times hmm. well um that would be a good story to tell to talk about how this woman deliberately told this story for whatever reason i can't remember off the because top of my head because she was jealous she was jealous of um the other black girls how they had prettier clothes than her but for the her to do this and then have to live with the fact that this boy was murdered by two people who felt they needed to defect her divinity or her innocence or her divine nature or whatever bullshit ass shit that they feel. And this boy gets murdered for it. And did they go to jail? No, the oh, people well, who committed okay. the crime, which was um, the woman's husband and uh, brother-in-law, uh, they... When they went to trial, they were acquitted, and then because of double jeopardy, after they were acquitted, they confessed that they did it. Did they capitalize off of talking about it? That um, I that do not. That sounds like some uh, George Martin shit. That I do not know. No, sorry, George Zimmerman shit. Excuse me. I don't know, but at the time, the way that media would have worked, there would have been so many stories about it either way, and it would have been a centralized story in a in America and maybe even globally because a, uh, a lot of uh, in a lot of um, academia some pe people argue that uh, what happened to Emmett Till sparked the this second wave of um, civil rights so you know uh. yeah and but I, but even in that even in that because they confessed they confessed that's not, I don't I don't see it as a confession I see it as them showing off like, you know you can't get in trouble, and it's like, yeah, 
you knew we did it before, but now we're telling you we did it. But also, this was you during can't a do time, anything. This was also during a time where people were literally harming, killing, maiming, lynching. Wait, did you say it was in the Lynch Theater? Yes, the Gerald W. Lynch Theater. Mm. So in the Lynch Theater, they held this opera about Emmett Till that took place from the perspective of a white person. Of course, yeah. All right, I just wanted to make sure I understood in 2022. <laughs> in 2022, that is all of the circumstances that is happening for this particular situation. Correct, right? Correct. Wow, wow, wow. Wow. Written by a white woman. So, you know, there was like... I. And then the only, and I think part of the reason why this got so highlighted is because people were talking about it on TikTok and, or, you know, that the, there's a petition, a John Jay student start, started a petition and she didn't even know about it because it wasn't advertised at the school because, uh, oh yeah. Oh, they Claire, did that shit on purpose. You know, oh yeah. but Claire, but it's, it's not a, it's, it, while it is showing at John Jay, and it might even have actors from John Jay. John Jay is not sponsoring or it's not one of the main sponsors of the play. Clara Koss got the funding and paid for it to be shown there. However, John Jay could have said no. You know? So. Well, it's not a surprise that they didn't. You know, uh, uh, time and time again, people or organizations or institutions tend to show us who they really are. Um, uh, I, I don't know if we said this last episode, but we're trying to keep our episodes shorter. So we're going to try to, you know, make sure that we have conversations that are meaningful and important, get straight to the point and concise. Um, anything else you want to add to this? That is all. Um, I my popping off. <laughs> I guess I just want to be real quick. I know we talked about the uh, Jesse Smollett trial in the past. Um <sighs> There's been a lot that's been happening since. Um, the only thing I really want to add to it is that to say it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, all of the circumstances. Uh, just to give a real, real quick rundown. When we last talked about it, he was just found guilty. Um, he was given uh, time in prison or, ja or jail. In jail. In jail. He um, stayed for like five days. Then they released him, like just released him unconditionally. Um, there's a lot of uproar about like, wait, them because him being charged in, in, in the first place. And it's just a lot of it's 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 a whirlwind. And I did research on this and it's a whirlwind to me still. It's a juicy story. <laughs> juicy Smollett. I, that was good. But um, he doesn't have he's not on probation or anything. Uh, I don't know. Uh, right now, he's released unconditionally, and and people are demanding that. What the? What was the point of arresting him? Honestly, I think or putting they him in jail. Are trying to mess with him because they feel like they he messed with them. I have no idea. It just feels very. I don't want to say juvenile, but it seems very like oh. Is this how we're going to do it? We're going to muck you up and make it really uncomfortable for you for the next couple of whatever. But it it seems like. It was petty to put him in prison if you were only going to do it for five days, like for a show. But then also I wonder if because of his level of fame, he got a certain kind of treatment. You know, like, I don't know. Like, it's hard to say. Yeah. We don't know at this point. As it, you'll, We'll probably, 
as we get more clarity, we'll probably say something only because we started to talk about it um, from the beginning. But um, that's us popping off. And we now want to transition. And we don't have transitional music for y'all yet. So we're, we're working on that. Not for this but one. But we want to transition into something a little bit more sad. I, I don't know how else to say it. It's just. And this one, the, the, our Digging Deep has a bit more gravity to it. Uh, a, 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 a bit more gravity. <laughs> so our Digging Deep, um, today we're going to talk about dispar- disparities in healthcare specifically with black women and mainly how racism plays a part in the care, service, and support they may receive during a hospital visit. If you've been aware of this situation, this may not come as a surprise to you. But let's take a deeper look into it. So I wanted to start off by uh, talking about this study. Researchers at the University of Southern California, also known as USC, found a prevailing issue that is causing a serious health detriment to black Americans. That prevailing, long-lasting issue is what is known as racism. (laughs) Big shock. Big, big shock. Ding! There is a movement to acknowledge racism itself as a public health crisis. Racism plays many roles. We know of the explicit racism and somewhat about the systemic racism that is so embedded in our culture. And the denial of the experience of racism by others, uh, by people outside of the black, indigenous people of color communities. The system of white supremacy has not only created obvious gaps like wealth, but also gaps in health care. Uh, the gaps that we're going to focus on today is specifically on, it, on the maternal and infant health side. There was a researcher from USC School of Social Work. Tyan, I'm sorry if I'm saying the name wrong, Tyan Parker Dominguez. They stated that of all major racial and ethnic groups in the country, African-American women are more likely to deliver babies too early, too small, to bury them before their first birthday, and to die in pregnancy, during delivery or in the postpartum year. And I just want to say, if you've ever had to attend or be around when an infant is being buried it is probably one of the saddest experiences you can have in life it is just terrible okay so you know just to follow that up um it is terrible i've been to a funeral like that and there's no words that you can say to the family um but we are going to talk about the specifically the gap between um sorry a breath we're going to focus specifically on the, the um, gap with black women and uh, maternal, fetal, and infant care. So we're going to go way, way back to when um, gynecology was first being founded. The doctor who spearheaded this and is considered to be the father of gynecology, uh, his name is James Marion Sims or J. Marion Sims. You, if you're from New York, you may have seen a statue. You know, very cool. Take a picture. Um, that's me being sarcastic, just just to highlight that. Um, so he did. He would do experiments um, on black women, black in black enslaved women. Um, after they obviously after they gave birth, he would do episiotomies. If you don't know what an episiotomy is, it's when sometimes when uh, women give birth, um, 
there there is a tear between their vulva and their anus. So at the time that he was operating, which is in the late 1800s, um, they they didn't have what we know right now as anesthesia, but they did have ether to anesthetize. That's how you say it. I don't. Anesthetize. Sure. They they did have um, ether to put people to sleep as they say, while he was operating. And because he believed and he himself taught, like the society believed that black people didn't feel pain and that even more so that black women did not feel pain. He did not give them this ether. So he was stitching these women up um, with no anesthesia. And in the book Medical Apartheid, um, there's actually documents where the students he he was teaching, they would faint and they would quit medical school because the screams of the woman were just so horrific. And Shit. and at this time, there wasn't really a concept of hygiene. So women would get really bad infections. And so they would have to go back and keep repeating the same procedure. And of course, you know, um, he would practice on black women. And then on white women, he, it would be as close to perfected as you can get. So this it was a a very large gap when it came to came to care, um, not just medicinal care but like emotional care. So black women were guinea pigs in a sense. Yes. So that way they can take whatever they learn, all the mistakes that they make, trying something for the first time, so it's perfected in a way, so that white women can really get the best care they possibly can. Yes, and you know they also would do experiments on how different things would work on infants. So you know your favorite brand, Johnson & Johnson, they invested and they participated in these clinical trials on infants. And I'm not going to go into it because um, you heard the last episode. I want to, you know, trying to keep that mental health strong. So if you would like to Google it, there is the book uh, Medical Apartheid, which um, I will post on the Instagram. And... um, or you can Google, you know, some scholarly articles about Johnson and Johnson and where they got their money from. Is Johnson and Johnson also? No, I think that's Bear. That was the one that gave the kids AIDS. That I'm not sure of. Allegedly, I'm just just in case I'm wrong. I'm gonna throw my favorite word back out there, allegedly. But I'm gonna Google it now while you keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then you know to um to to bring this gap into like modern times. Um, we have, in 2017, Serena Williams gave birth to her daughter, Alexa Olympia. And she, Serena Williams had a blood clotting issue that before, before she had the baby, it was something that she, she would get blood clots in her lung. So um, this was something that the doctors would have known about because it was a pre-existing existing condition. That's the word. So after she gave birth... She walked out of the room because she had the presence of mind to walk out because she didn't want to frighten her mother to say and to tell the nurses, I need, um, uh, she said that she said that she needed a CT because she was having a hard time breathing. Um, Serena Williams also had a C-section. C-section, you know, that's something that you only want to do in a case of an emergency because while people think that it's just cutting open your stomach, you need to think about you have it's not just cutting open skin a baby is not under your skin a a baby is under your stomach so you have to cut through all of the ab muscles you know 
um, to, and you have to, you have to cut through the ab muscles and open up the body. So it is, um, you know, a hard surgery to recover from in itself and to perform. So the, the, the nurses and the doctors assumed that her pain medication was messing with her head. And so they didn't, at first they didn't really do anything, but then, you know, she, she kept, you know, she was persistent. And so they did a, um, a Doppler or an ultrasound on her leg. And of course they didn't find anything because if she's having shortness of breath, the clots are in her lungs or they're near her heart. It's a cardiovascular issue. It's not going to be necessarily in your legs. So, um, she, she kept asking for a CT. They eventually gave her a CT and they saw that she had, um, all of these clots. She had multiple clots and then they did a procedure so to per to take out the clots and to prevent more from happening. Then, you know, um, while all of this is happening, Serena Williams is coughing so hard that um, because, you know, she's having shortness of breath that her C-section incision opens up. And so they had to go back. They had to do a sec, another surgery. Yeah. Had to do another surgery. And they found out that she had, um, what is the word? She had a hematoma that also had to be removed. So she had multiple things going on, but had she not been persistent, the doctors would have assumed it was um, her medicine and they would have written her off. Even like Beyonce, we talked about Beyonce before, Beyonce had preeclampsia, which can um, shut down your organs, you know, and can cause seizures if it's not caught early enough. And But these are two, both women, right? They have prenatal care, which a lot of women may not be able to have. They're having regular... Um, doctor visits you know these are also women who because of their because of their jobs they are very aware of their health you know they have you know they might they they just with travel you know and having and being having international travel they have to go to the doctor more than other people would you know so they have a a very vast medical history that they that they that they are aware of which a lot of people may not have because most black people are underinsured if they are insured at uh, or underinsured or not insured at all. So that, that just shows you the whole, the the bigger issue. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So then even after all of this, right. Um, Serena, normally after C-section, you have eight weeks of bed rest, but by the time Serena was leaving the hospital, um, this is after weeks, she still had six weeks of bed rest. So for a, a normal working woman, most of the women I know, I took I took seven weeks. I was lucky enough to have seven weeks, um, but it was unpaid. Had I not been able to save money, I would have had to go back to work. I know a lot of women that they go back to work the next week or two weeks after they give birth because they have to go to work. They cannot They cannot afford to miss more than one pay cycle. And I think that kind of leads me into what I want to say about this is that the healthcare is a business and it's a business that does not really often look out for its shareholders. So as somebody who is seeking healthcare, you're seeking healthcare to get well, to get better, to, you know, overcome something. But because of the way the system is set up here in America, I mean, I'm sorry, shout out to our international listeners. Um, who are like, what the fuck is going on? No, y'all are like, we we could go to the hospital whenever we want. In America, it's not that simple. Um, I live pretty comfortably, 
the teach lives pretty comfortably, but I am one possible major accident away from losing it all, from being homeless. And that is something that a, a millions and millions of Americans have to deal with every day. I am one accident, one tragedy, one something from possibly being bankrupt. And that is something that a lot of countries mm. cannot, people who live in those countries can't comprehend. And it's, it's, it's unnecessary. It shouldn't be this way. But it's also just plain old scary. I unfortunately I don't I unfortunate news. You you're thinking like major tragedy. When you especially now in a pandemic, you are really one bad cold away from losing everything. Yeah. Just because you know you don't know what's going to happen once you get into the hospital, all the tests you have to do. And most And the tests are costly in America. Like and they'll the, run every test. They'll charge you so much money for Tylenol from things you can walk to the corner and get. They'll charge you so much money to ride in an ambulance. It's just, it's a business. And based on what it should be, and just like a lot of institutions in America, these things shouldn't be businesses or they shouldn't be political or whatever the case may be. But healthcare in America is more about business. It's about insurance it's about doing the least in order to maximize profits and when and also then there's also the bias aspect that i don't think we really touched on yet of when we're talking about textbooks what people are learning the training in medical school about how some races feel less pain or feel pain differently than others no no don't i those are two different things that you just said. Okay. So saying that, like I said with um, James uh, James um, Marion Sims or James Sims Marion, sorry, I'm all activated. He taught he taught um, doctors that black people did not feel pain, black women did not feel pain, right? So if that's what that is what is being passed on and taught in medical school, saying that people feel pain differently is something different because that would that's like saying you and I would experience a heart attack differently not that has nothing to necessarily do with the the pain like we would feel a, we would feel the pain in different areas because how a man get the um a man's symptom of a heart attack is different from a woman so our pain would be different that's that's a different notion than someone not feeling pain at all or feeling pain less no i get that i i definitely hear that um so I, I get it. But even then, though, there's a whole belief that people feel pain differently. So we're not human beings based on our race and whatever. But we also have to also understand that in America, it's not like there was a lot of voices. There's not like there was a lot of black voices to say, hey, we feel pain the same. It was a bunch of people speculating about who feels pain and how they feel it and their understanding about how other people feel pain. Plus... We also got to take into account that they also considered people, mainly black people, not to be fully as human from them for many different aspects. The shape of their skull, the fact that they were only three-fifths of a person. All of these different things in order to try to create this divide and separation between one human being from another. I think that there is a definite separation, and I think you can think of how medical textbooks have been written the same way... You, and by who? That's important as well. I think this, that you can think of the way that 
medical textbooks are written the same way you would look at how history books are written. And there is one controlling class that is, or one controlling group that is writing the history from, uh, in the, at least in the, in the context, of Amer- context of America, it's one group writing the history and you have one group. And if this group is, you know, white supremacy, it, it continues to evolve. It doesn't only evolve in a historic aspect, it involves in all aspects. And if these are the same people who are writing the textbook, they're going to keep saying they don't feel pain. And that is how we, we end up with people dying from something that women do all of the time. You know, women are always giving birth, yet we have black women dying at a at an exponential rate. We have black fetuses dying we have black infants dying and this is it and that in itself is an epidemic and that leads us to our next part is how did we get here how did we get to this point in time in 2022 where we're still talking about the fact that everybody's not getting equal health care you could pay for it but that's also the problem the amount of money the amount of wealth that you have can literally dictate life and death. And not only just for you, but also for your child, for your unborn child, for your small infant child, or whatever. If you're a parent and you have to work so much in order to, uh, you know, survive, because that's basically what it is. You have to work one, two, three jobs in order to survive. And then you have another parent who just has the means. They can have uh, prenatal... So this is not really my realm, so please interject at any point. They can get prenatal supplements. They can get prenatal support. Everything they can that while they're pregnant, that they're doing everything they can to maintain and and help to, you know, build the fetus to infant stage through the pregnancy up. So the prenatal care looks different for different people. Yes, every yeah, every like it's not my wheelhouse, y'all. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, so. Um, everybody or yes, everyone needs to take prenatal vitamins while they are pregnant, but you might need other supplements that you would not, you wouldn't know you needed if you didn't have a a gynecologist to go to. So, or even if you, um, if you had a different kind of support, um, like a, like a midwife, someone who can, um, like go in with, you know, can, can like go in with a sonogram and see the baby. Um, that you would not know that you needed or can do blood tests. You know, you have to get that kind of care. At the same time, you know, a lot of women cannot afford to miss work to go to the doctor, especially when you have to go at first once a month, then it's every two weeks. And then for most um, for most new mothers, the if you go um, over past your due date, at a certain point, you're going once a week. Most people cannot do that. You know, so that in itself is a privilege to be able to have that kind of care. And also prenatal vitamins, whether you get them over the counter at like, you know, you pull them off the shelf or you pay for them through the through the office. All that shit is expensive. 
Um, and a lot, and sometimes like if I had to get iron supplements, that shit is hard to find. And then, you know, certain supplements, then you have to do all these, you have to do all these other things. I had to take supplements, like the regular prenatal vitamins, had to take calcium on top of that and iron pills. Then I had to eat like 50 million fucking prunes because iron makes your stool hard. And, and if, if, and, and if I strained myself too much, it was like, it was so, so many different things and it was expensive. And, you know, if I didn't have support, I would have been like, you know what? This I'm going to drink this milk. I don't know. Like, make up for it. And I think that's where the healthcare system, because it's so for profit that all these tests cost money. Should these tests cost money? Probably not. Should they cost as much? Oh, sorry. Should they cost money? Probably. Should they cost as much money as they do? Probably not. But. That is the system that is the American system. One thing I do want, I want to shift gears a bit. I want to talk about going back to doctors' biases. But also, doctors are seen as an authority figure. So they're the people that's supposed to be in the know, that's supposed to really tell you what you can in order for you to maintain a healthy body, a healthy lifestyle. And then when their biases interfere with how to give you the actual advice the actual support the actual what am i trying to say i want to say something more than support when it's coming from an authority figure i think the that guidelines I, I'm, I'm not sure i'm just i i think that when it comes to your health whether it be physical or mental emotional that you expect the person that you are going for um that the person that you are going to to care for you is going to actually treat you with care and actually pay attention. And while we know that doctors see a lot of different patients, we still expect there to be some, like more than just like filling out paperwork and like push and like, you know, like it, it's a practice and we expect you to do your best each time. And, not, and for every patient. Yeah, for every patient and for you to get to know every patient, for you to get to know the patients that you have so that you can treat them to fit whatever their lifestyle is. Because you can see 10 people who live in the same area, who have similar jobs and who have the similar diets and allergies or whatever, but each of them are, are going to need different care and tailored care. And I understand that that is a lot to ask, but... You, Doctors go into the profession for this reason. Yeah, yeah. And, and if I'm sorry, if we can talk, like you're you're a teacher. You said that if we expect teachers to tailor to all these different students, we can expect doctors to tailor to all these different patients. Yeah, and and I think that's part of what we may not see. Now, this is not a conversation to say every doctor is like that, but there's enough. It's a um, it's a system. It's not one or two. Do it's not this doctor, that doctor, it's the system. It's the bad apples argument, you know, that, that is made by a lot of systems to say, well, overall people or the people who work here or do this job are good, but there are a few bad apples. Well, what's being done to change these bad apples? What's being done to change this bias? What's being done to, to change this racist education that they're getting about who feels pain and what? What is being done to change their racist views and understandings about people? That is where the argument kind of falls short. It's an excuse to try to justify, and whatever you want to say, we still live in a system where 
whiteness kind of dominates and when it's called out it's really pushed back against it's used in many different ways to say well this institution isn't racist or this isn't the system isn't racist it's just a few people doing racist things well when it's happening time and time again by the same people or by different people at what point do we say the system needs to be changed I do I do think that um within the realm of white supremacy there is a big a big problem is white denial or deflection and it's like just because that isn't your experience or because you think racism is a thing of the past doesn't mean that it's just because you think that doesn't mean it's not actively happening and you don't and it's not it's not your I feel like with denial and deflection it's like it's not your job to deny or deflect, it's your job to accept that it, that's an experience and just work to change. Yeah. Um, we as, as we know, if you know and you've been listening, we know we're about working on your shit. And we know it's hard to be called out uh, about shit, especially when it's called out about race or racism or supremacy or denial. But it's always important to listen to what somebody has to say instead of just going to a place of defense. And I think that if your first instinct is to deny or to say, oh, they're talking about black women and maternity here that we don't want to listen to it or what they're saying is untrue. Listen to what's being said. Take into what is being said. Do research where we told you we're going to share some articles, some some places for you to look at to follow up and always do research whenever you hear something i even if it still agrees with what you're saying always just do it it's just a good habit to have to fact check to double check because people out here be lying that's true and while you know we are not saying that we are experts we do research these topics before we set them very out much. to you very and much I we're not going to come on these mics i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt we're not going to come on these mics and just spit or just tell you stuff just willy-nilly we're really going to do you see how i showed my age by using willy-nilly i mean I, that's something i say so. oh all right good yay i'm not that old um but we're not going to just come here and just give you information without actually backing it up and finding sources to double check what we're saying or what we're doing yeah like i know i gave birth two years after serena williams but i was terrified because i I've also had blood clots. So I told my doctor, I was like, I don't want to die giving birth. What are we going to do? I don't want, I kept saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And then when I was in active labor, I was like, what are we going to do? Cause I don't want to die. Uh, and then he put on these, these special boot things on me. And then I had to take heparin for six weeks after I gave birth, but I was terrified. I do want to just say that also brought up. I think also another part of healthcare is who becomes doctors. We, I'm a big fan of representation. I think representation matters. I think representation is important. I think representation makes us get a better understanding about the world because we see more of it and we, we, we experience more people from different races, from different cultures, from different backgrounds. But if the doctors are typically the same types of people living the same type of experiences and then they're working with patients who are different from them, it's not going to benefit them much, especially if they're not doing the work to understand the patients and the people around them. I, I want to just go back real quick because we're going to uh, wrap up digging deep. Before I wrap this up, uh, Naughty, is there anything you wanted to add about this 
digging deep. Well, just because you mentioned um, how, you know, people in, in the medical field generally are, generally are coming from one, uh, you know, one one part of the American culture. I Anecdotally, I saw on Instagram a story about how a girl was, you know, put hot water to curl her braids and the hot water spilled on her back and so she was burned. And the white doctors are like, why would you ever do that to your daughter? Why would you ever put boiling water near her? And then a black doctor came and said, that's common practice to curl hair. It was just a mistake. And I was like, oh, so you had one doctor because they had no idea about this part of culture possibly going to call like ACS or a different kind of child welfare welfare service. And if another doctor hadn't known about the culture, like, you know, all these things could have happened that would have been completely unnecessary. Yeah. And that's this is why it's very, very important to have different voices in the room. And it's doc we're, we're talking about healthcare today, but it's important to have different voices, different experiences in the room. I, I know that Hollywood would benefit from having and we're still talking about this, it's twenty twenty. 2022 but hollywood would benefit from having different voices in the room when they're trying to do some of their comedy that they love to do that tends to take a culture a race a stereotype and take that and turn that up as much as they can but you know it's 2022 i guarantee you and i'm going to make this prediction now that well for the end of this year some thing is going to happen where somebody's going to have to apologize because they didn't know or that it slept slipped through the cracks of their editing or whatever it's just going to happen we just we you just had in the heights or that's 2021 2021 i'm oh. talking i'm talking about from from today Wait, forward okay. so we said today was the 24th of march mm-hmm. let's see what happens and if i don't i will eat my words on on 12 31 why did i say it like that in December 31st, right before the end of the year, I will eat my words. But um, that is our digging deep. Um, really, we hope that you do some research, that you really share if you have any experiences one way or the other in healthcare, because we've only focused on one specific aspect of black maternity and uh, infant health through the lens and perspective of black women. But everybody has some form of healthcare experience in America. If you're not in America and you listen to this, you're probably like, I have no idea. In America, I don't want to say it's like the wild, wild west, but. When it's healthcare is, an ambulance is $800. And so that's why people, people will literally call a cab to go yes. to the hospital. And they'll be bleeding in the back of the cab. And they'll pay the fine and the cleanup fees or whatever it might be. And it will still be significantly cheaper then taking an ambulance. People who are epileptic, sorry, people who are epileptic will literally have like signs or keychains that say don't call ambulance. Also, don't get me started on the emergency rooms. Oh. Oh, you can be bleeding and they will have you wait hours to to see you. It's if you have an emergency, the emergency room is there <laughs> there in 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 wording. It's not really there. And if you were okay, you're so close to the next person, you're like, well, now I'm fucking sick. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, nah, I caught it. Or you'll get queasy just looking at somebody's severed thumb just sitting next to you, just waiting calmly while blood just keeps gushing out. It's just I'm not saying it, I'm I'm not saying it from experience, but I'm saying it from experience. <laughs> All right. So uh now 
It's the teacher's favorite segment. Thank you for that. It is my favorite segment. It is Naughty and the Teacher Recommends. However, I Don't messed up. Oh. <laughs> ah! so, thank you for the applause. <laughs> I messed up our sound bank. Um, putting in our new uh, popping off. I was excited. I was hyper. I was like, look what I did. And, and I messed it up. So. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Nordy just gave us the applause. I can't even do the air horn or nothing right now. We even the soundboard. Uh, we probably don't, but we are going to because our production value is increasing. Um, all right, so Nordy, what do you recommend this week? I was going to recommend a documentary about poverty, but I decided that I am gonna go light. Yay, um, we need light after this episode. So earlier, in an earlier um, podcast, I recommended the movie Jingle Jingle. I am going to make it even simpler. You know, I feel like uh, March is a hard month. You know, got Ides in March. You heard the last episode. Um, it's been really hard. So a song that I am recommending that you listen to is called The Square Root of Possible, by Madeline, sung by Madeline Mills from the Jingle Jangle soundtrack. If you are in a bad moment, I'm not going to promise a whole 180, but the song will at least give you a solid 90 degree change, solid 90, so you'll be part of the way there. Um, it's a really beautiful song, and even though she was 12 when she sang it, she did, she did the thing, okay? So I Dope. hope you listen and really take in the lyrics. Yes, and that's always good. Um, my recommendation recommendation this week is a book. It's called We Are Never Meeting in Real Life by Samantha Irby. Um, it's memoirs. Um, so one thing I wanted to do, especially during Black History Month, is read more black women authors. I wanted to really support them. Um, Samantha Irby is a writer. I know she writes on a couple of shows. I, can't, I cannot think of them off the top of my head, and it's killing me because it's literally on the back cover of the book. But she is funny. Her experiences, it's, it's a memoir it is extremely entertaining. She is funny. She got style. She got humor. If you can, I know she has three books. This, I don't know if this is the first one, but this is the first one I'm reading. And I can tell you, Samantha Irby, her book is hilarious. Definitely check it out. It. We are never meeting in real life. First and foremost, that title alone, and especially in, as you know, in the online dating world, we know that that's something we have said, <laughs> whether we match with somebody or we've been talking to somebody for a little bit, and we go, "Yo, mm -mm, this, this, we are never meeting in real life, ever." Yeah, so uh, definitely check that out. Great book, fun. Um, this one I'm reading. I normally like to have the author read it. Because um, there's no better, more authentic voice than hearing the author read their memoir, their experiences to you. It is the way to go. But I am reading this and I'm adding my voice of what I think she should sound like. He needs an audiobook. He is not having Gabrielle Union sit in his house and read to him. Oh. You said, I like it when the author reads right, to me. Right. <laughs> no, they're not I mean, coming to him to read. I, with Samantha Irby, I did do Gabrielle Union's book, but we'll talk about that at another point. But. Samantha Irby, shout outs to you. Great job. We appreciate that. And shout out to Cory Booker. You gave my compliment. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, so um Cory Booker, 
gave the you are worthy. I know he listens to the podcast. So shout out to you, Corey Booker. And shout out to Rosario Dawson. We're both from the LES. So if you're sitting next to Corey, give him a super cool high five. Yes. Uh, maybe it was Rosario who's playing the podcast in the background and he heard that you are worthy. He was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to use that. I'm going to say that tomorrow. I got, thank you. Shout outs to you using that. But, um, um, any news, anything interesting we want to share with the part our readers with readers, listeners with. Well, I know you don't care, but Cardi B is going to be on the baby shark show. Cardi. Yeah. Cardi B is going to be, um, dang. It's like Cardi shark. And then it's offset is off shark. And then culture is culture shark, which I think is absolutely lovely. And if you're listening to my voice right now and you do anything with animation, DM me. I have a daughter. She can talk. We can be on a show as well. Thank you. Uh, I also just want to say it's not that I don't care. I just didn't know that shark, the baby shark. Is it that do, 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 do? Close, yes, yes, you have the idea. But is that the song, Baby Shark? Do 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 do, Baby. Yeah, shark? there you go. All right, I didn't know they had a show. I know you don't watch kids shows. That's why I say you don't. You don't. It, f- it's not. It's not that you don't care about Cardi B. It's that you don't care about kids shows because you're not watching them. Also, there's a lot of adult shows I'm not even watching. So, <laughs> yeah, but no, I get you. Um, all right, y'all. Thank you. I we we understand that this episode was a little bit heavy. But we got something a little bit more light, a little bit more fun to you that kind of will play off of this episode next week. So oh, yeah. tune in and we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Shout out to our international listeners. Shout out to all of our listeners. Again, you should send us a message on Instagram. What's our handles? Our handles are at Naughty and the Teach at Naughty Flower. One word spelled how it is spelled in the dictionary and at the teach nyc and i know that you saw our last post the first thing the first thing on your to-do list is to listen to all the episodes second is to follow and dm us and third i think also maybe the third one was to dm us but that was the whole list so please get on it thank you also as our you know Again, this is a two-person operation. It's Naughty and the Teach. We're always looking for people to support, always looking for people to help out. Um, You know, we are ready to upgrade our logo, and we're ready to make some changes. So if you have any particular skills, any suggestions, you've been listening, and you have ideas that you want to float our way, we're all ears. We're willing to listen, and we thank you for taking the time out of your day, your commute, whatever it might be, to really listen to us. Bye. Shout-outs to you all.